certainly Fjorda's intent on building relationships with clients. So moving away from just a, a single instance, let me build you a X service or let me redesign this particular experience. It was very much building the relationships with the product managers, the product owners, the, the C-suite to the extent that as a small little company, we could actually get to them. Welcome to the What is UX podcast, the show where we interview design leaders about their journey and experience so that you may learn from them. I'm your host, Peck Pongpat. Good afternoon. In this episode, we have a very special guest. His name is Andrew Falcon, and he has the distinction of being the CEO of Fjord, a design and innovation consultancy that I've admired for a long time. As a COO, he led uh, financial matters, performance, supply demand, pipeline health, HR, IT planning. Most notably, uh, he scaled Fjord from 200 plus people to over 1,100 full-time employees, from nine global offices to over 36. Fjord was later acquired in about 12 years to Accenture, joining Accenture Interactive. Quite an amazing journey. Welcome to the show. We're honored to have you here. And this will be an amazing opportunity for design leaders who want to scale their design org to learn how Fjord did it from the guy who did it. Guys who did guys it. Guys who did it. certainly not the only one. Um, there's some really clever people that I worked, worked with. But yeah, thank you for having me and really happy to be on the show. All yours. Yeah. In a nutshell, what kind of work did Fjord do? Because I know it's digital, it's user experience, it's innovation, but that can be pretty broad. It, it can be really broad, and there are some much cleverer folks than me, and certainly the founders, Olaf Scheibigson, Mark Curtis, Mike Beeson, that actually set up Fjord back in 2000, I think. It was just at that turn, turn of the millennium. I think there were a lot of financial um, yeah, crises going on at the time, so I know Olaf and Mark often yeah, smile at yeah, launching a company into that, that kind of world. But the, the gents introduced the concept of service design as being a very specific offering to companies human-centered customer experience approach, which I think certainly from the UK, and it was you know, set up in the UK to go with Helsinki, Finland, where Olaf was based, and there was a small unit that they opened up in Berlin. But it was very much the early stages of service design. That, that word in itself is, is very broad, but it focused on that particular aspect. And I think that's where they started off the relationship with the Nokias, Yahoo's, the Office World, which BBC, which were early clients of theirs. They had built up an ongoing relationship with each of these. And then it started expanding and rolling out into further and further territories and more demand for, from clients. That was the, the start of it. Got it. And how did you end up working at Fjord? How did they find you or the other way around? <laughs> they, they probably rue the day I was ever introduced to them. Um, <laughs> right around about 2008, 2008, 2009, Olaf and Mark and Mike, I think we're all exploring what this meant you know everyone was working really hard working their fingers to the bone but it was you know, for what purpose and what direction was, was this really going to go in to be considered a truly international you know, service design agency consultancy they really wanted a, a presence in the u.s they were being asked at that time to go into you know, more and more territories or regions or cities on the back of successful work that they had delivered to their existing clients they needed to raise a little bit of capital and in, in today's world, we're used to the hundreds of millions. It was small. It was really tiny in actual numbers. But in order to do that, in order to really allow them to focus and the designers that 
um, existed had been employed by Fuel at that time. And that was about 30 or 40 employees. They, they really wanted somebody to come in and hold all the loose ends. Let's call it the loose ends or the other ends. Everything other than the pure offering of that service design. So that was very much the financial controls, IT, HR, recruitment, retention, compliance, reading lots and lots of legal contracts, but somebody who could actually help guide them on that side of the business. So it was with the guidance or permission of the venture capital companies to them that came in that I joined at that time. And that, that little bit of funding allowed us to then expand more, let's say, more intentionally into those areas that they were really interested in. That's how I was introduced to them. I think they had a big dose of humor. I'm a recovering lawyer type. I worked for big mining companies, uh, <laughs> big merchant banks. I had just actually come out of a another company, a small digital uh, content technology platform type play where we had grown that out of South Africa from small little you know, 20 to 30 person team up to 600 people in 26 countries. And we'd listed it on the London Stock Exchange. So it was with all that experience of building small, exciting companies that convinced Mark and Olaf and Mike and the, the investors that they just needed somebody to allow the founders to focus on what they're good at and have somebody else pick up the pieces. Yeah, that is a, such a common problem for creative agencies and creative types who are good at their craft, right? They're not necessarily good at the business and good at managing things or being detail-oriented. I speak mostly actually of myself. <laughs> and uh, I think the very similar journey Impeccable has had growing from a small company. And as we scaled, we've had to be more detail-oriented and we have to mind other things besides the craft and the offering. And those are things that I definitely re- realized I was not good at and bringing on the right people and to bring to bear and solve these problems and staff up your weaknesses. Yeah. The lovely thing, which I, I keep at the back of my mind, that there are too many flat squirrels on the highway of indecision. More, more, more a reference to make a decision, be yeah. intentional, go forward, constantly go forward. If it's something I was able to help Mark and Olaf and, and Mike do at the time, is you know, to help make those decisions and make them confidently. And yes, you can always course correct. But I think to your point, there are so many brilliant ideas that are sort of left on the, the highway of indecision or the highway. Yes. Yeah, indecision is the best word. So if there's anything I can do to actually help those, any founder make decisions, get to a place that they want to get to, you highlight the service or the product that they're building, that's what uh, blows my hair back. Yeah. Just a little bit of background, uh, you know, the, the the accent might be a dead giveaway that you're not uh, American, but yeah, where are you from and where did you grow up? Yeah, um, born and bred South African, so way back, um, I'm not going to give my age away, but <laughs> until the age of, sort of late 20s, early 30s, it was growing up mainly in Johannesburg, then down in Cape Town. As I mentioned, yeah, I studied law and finance, which gave me the background. I'd love to be able to say on your show that I'm a born and bred designer. I've come to learn that the value and the desire or wish that I had been enough convincing both both our children that, that this is the this space to go into. But so many Cape Town or Johannesburg, Cape Town, then the company that I was referring to wanted to list on the London Stock Exchange. So the idea there was to move over for a year or two to London and we'd go back to Cape Town and invariably, as everyone probably is aware, that never happens. That was 10 years in London. So there was a little bit of sort of you know, POM accent or English accent in there. And then we've had 10 years in the US. I joined Fjord in London and then moved over with them in 2010, almost to the month. Wow. wow. So yeah, little, little confusing accent. Yeah. 
I, I, I share kind of some of that experience in the sense that I, I too, even though I lead a design agency, I, I never had formally had any design training. I learned on the job as self-taught designer, but my degree in training school is in engineering. And for the first third of my career was strictly engineering. Probably around the time in the early 2000s, I also realized that, or mid-2000s, I realized that design was my passion. Back then, the internet didn't have as many resources. The internet was also nascent, and but there were enough resources in forms of books and CDs and <laughs> videos that I was able to learn design, and here we are. But that's what's so amazing about anything that is going to be human-centered. Almost doesn't matter what background you're, you're coming from. The minute you actually get the importance of what you know, the, the mom and pop, the user, yeah, the ultimate yeah. end user really wants. You could come from any background, but applying that skill set and you know, even applying more the operational mindset than I have, how we've helped grow and build Fjord with the diverse thinking, it, it all adds into it. You're living proof of that. <laughs> what was the early days at Fjord? Do you have any fond memories? <laughs> yeah, I, I tell you what, I think that the fondest memories, yeah, well, yeah, I'll carry until probably the, the end of my days. But I think the very, very first day, there was a massive snowstorm uh, across London. I think all of London sort of closed down, but I knew that Mike Beeson, the, the chairman of the company at the moment, had wanted to meet with me on that particular Monday morning. I just remember flying through snow, walking through snow, trying to get to the train station. I think there was one train. So that, that's the fondest memory on day one. But I think you know, walking into that office, walking into the, the, the studio, I should rather say, and seeing the kind of people that were genuine, authentic. Yes, they're, they're all designers, but really interested in you as a person, encouraging of the building of a culture, a special kind of culture that you don't get in many corporates or in most corporates, you don't really get that. So I think that was the first message to me, Tony, in my little mind of in building a company like this, you've got to keep a firm grasp on that day one, day two type memory of these are awesome people. They're interested in you. They're interested in making the world a better place to live and work. And if there's any opportunity of them being able to you know, show that up to clients, boy, they, they, they brought it. So it, it was great seeing how a company had a very different culture than, let's say, the merchant banking one that I'd had or the <laughs> big mining company or, you know, dare I say, I had a year in the South African Air Force as well. Very different again. People like designers working together with intent, improving an experience was spectacular for me. Amazing. So this is a somewhat selfish question and be probably pertinent to many small agencies that have the wish to, and to scale, but a lot of times you know, I would say us creative types struggle with sales. So you can, and, and what we don't want to do is preemptively hire a bunch of people and not have the ability to meet up, have the sales to support it. How did Fjord scale sales and uh, as you grew, because you, you wanted to grow intently? Yeah. It's a good question. I'd love to say that there's a silver bullet, but put it out there for free. But I think it was a combination of probably two or three, three factors. Certainly Fjord was intent on building relationships with clients. So moving away from just a, a single instance, let me build you a X service or let me redesign this particular experience. It was very much building the relationships with the product managers, the product owners, the, the C-suite to the extent that as a small little company, we could actually get to them. But building that 
ongoing relationship expanding out from just the here and now. And typically, as most people are probably aware, you have clients knocking on the door saying, I want a new app. Yeah, that <laughs> might be one of the solutions, but actually let's take three steps back and establish if that is part of that solution, let's actually establish what the need, what the problem set is. And then building that into a longer term relationship. I think Fjord was exceptionally successful at that, particularly with companies like Nokia. At the time, that was a enduring relationship almost from the year 2000 through to you know, well into the years and certainly after I joined them, so that's you know, 10, 10 plus years. That was, that was part of it. You, as you would probably expect, the recruitment of business development people, that, that was always going to be a little bit trickier because explaining service design is not an easy, it's not an easy task. It's not saying here's an app and this is the functionality and look how great it is. It's very much being able to tell a story confidently, to be able to build those relationships, which gives the confidence to the client that this is the group that we want to work with. We're constantly up against the big players like the Adios and the Frogs. And we always used to look at, you know, look up to Frog, which was a big company at the time. So th- those companies probably opened the door a little bit more for us until mm-hmm. we started taking more and more of th- those projects on. Um, but there would have been an element or there was an element of business development capability that we recruited for. And it was difficult finding the right one. So that we traded in, we traded out. But I think we're, one of the important elements is it's not just the, the salesperson, it's the alignment, the collaboration, the relationship between the real hardcore experienced designers and the business development teams that could actually work together, going two clients together, identifying what those problem sets were, and then collaboratively working out what the solution could or should be, next steps, at which point business development, you know, go to market really steps back a little bit. So th- those were the early years. I think it became increasingly I think harder is that the market became more and more, let's say, that there were more players into the market all claiming service design. That's always <laughs> a dangerous statement to say, of course, we do service design. I think Fjord was very much true to what that actually meant, but it was very much, it was very difficult breaking through the rest. I think one of the main reasons and a huge benefit of aligning with a strategic partner like Accenture was Accenture had, you know, X thousands, you know, uh, Fortune 500 plus type clients many of which were going through the same challenges of how do I reinvent myself? How do I reimagine our product or our service? And that's really where the very small little field was able to come in and align with yeah. these kinds of clients. So it, it was a kind of match made in heaven at the time, and it continues to be, but that was very much yeah. how the business development evolved. Was the strategic partnership in before the acquisition, or was that part of the acquisition strategy? Did you partner with Accenture or did Accenture partner with you prior to the acquisition and then maybe it was working well and then? No, and I stand corrected, but I wasn't aware of any work that we had been doing specifically with Accenture at the time. Having joined the company, we did spend a lot of time working through what our strategic intent was. You know, what, what, what was our North Star? What direction were we going to go in? How did we want to build and grow? Were we going to go and raise another you know, X million pounds in order to build ourselves um, into the next frog but different? Or were we going to go and align with a technology company like a, a Cognizant or a TCS? We explored the, the Marcoms worlds, the WPPs, the IPGs, publicists, et cetera. We were just starting to work on, or at least to meet with some of the bigger consultancies. And I think what became very, very clear is you know, Raising Cash, the venture capital company that we had behind us was incredibly supportive. And they said they would be there if that was the best path. We were nervous about the technology companies because I think technology, being acquired by a technology company would always lead to 
technology first as opposed mm-hmm. to design first and technology as a supportive link. And um, to Olaf and, credit, uh, Olaf and Mark and Mike's you know, credit, it was always design first. We'll find the technology that will support. So we were nervous about technology, didn't pursue that path. Mark comes, we, I think we would have been given some fantastic exposure to some exceptional type clients, but I think that was as challenging possibly from a different perspective in that the, the Markcoms agencies were buying a lot of fuel type companies. It was always going to be very muddy waters weaving our way through to become a leader in that space. But it was at that time we had just started considering and being introduced to one or two players at the big consultancies. And I think it was at that time that Beji Shah, Accenture Interactive, Who's, who put the strategy together of experience together with the team at an interactive knocked on our door simply saying you've got an interesting model we've got you know, a bunch of clients we're trying to build this capability within accenture itself i think interactive had only been going three or four years at the time let's have a chat and i think the cultural mindset link was almost immediate it became really clear that with the support of, and I'll use the word protection, because that's important, the protection of interactive, that allowed us to come into the group and gave us a platform from which to build and grow. Um, I think yeah, all of us will be forever grateful for that opportunity. And I think we've had, or Field has had a really good influence back into the broader group. But answer your question, there had almost no work with Accenture beforehand, but it came very clear, very obvious, very quickly. That was the best strategic partnership to go with. Yeah. In a twist of small world, Beiju used to work at Accenture Technology Labs, where I also used to work. So I, I knew him <laughs> as well. It's a very small world. You can world. blame him. It's all Beiju's fault. Yeah, yeah. He's done really well for, for Accenture, it's, it's, I would say. This yeah. was something that was sorely lacking. Actually, that was also partly why I left, because I didn't see a lot of user experience wow. and service design. And I was very enamored of that. And I ended up joining a, a smaller agency that that it was almost split down the middle. They say that, you know, they were a design and technology firm and their headcount was split down the middle between design practitioners and, and engineering and technology. And I had a good time there, learned a lot and developed my design skills. The business, you, you touched on an interesting thing, the, the BD role, if a company wanted to scale that, and it takes a certain type of BD person who can tell a story. What does that person look like? And where would you find people like that? And what's the <laughs> DNA? <laughs> yeah. I think it's turning over a lot of rocks in order to find that, that perfect person. I think yeah, perfection, you'll seldom, if ever, actually acquire. Some of the best business development people were, in fact, exceptionally good designers that had wanted uh. to spread out or scale out into more of the front-end client relationships mm. and building of the, those client relationships. If I think of some of our earlier stronger proponents of the, the fueled business model, which it doesn't really matter what you called them, but they had built strong relationships at a particular client. That client sat in Madrid, for example, in Spain. The relationship between the client and the, the fueled designer who also was good at building up that relationship, became the head of Fjord Spain or Fjord Madrid. And then it evolved out from that. And because you know, as a leader of Fjord Madrid, you're doing a little less of the design work, although they're 24 hours in a day and I'm sure 
that the lead of Field Madrid would have been spending 25 hours a day. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's then introducing that capability into other clients within the Madrid environment. So going from, I think our, our first major client in Madrid was a telecommunications company that then moved into the banking world, um, which then moved into you know, other industries. So what is that that perfect business development person in a design type space? I think they're going to have a strong understanding of design. Ideally, with a design type background and a desire to want to spend more time telling those stories up front, yeah. I think that's probably step one. We had a couple of what appear to be really good business development, go-to-market, sales type people. They came from software. And I, I know we trialed one or, one or two of those because they came across incredibly strong in a very strong, good sales storytelling type manner. But I think inherently you're always going to be a software type person. Um, right. And that didn't work as well. So it's probably identifying, and it comes back to that point, you're coming from a design type background is always going to be really helpful. I, I can talk about you know, service design and customer experience and user interface to a point. Yeah. But to be truly authentic, I think you do need to have some really good experience yourself to be able to tell those stories confidently and authentically. Yeah. Well, it, uh, in many ways, I, what you described, uh, a lot of that echoes with me because I was a design practitioner. And when I decided to open my own practice, you, you have to go on the knocking road. on the, on the road, go. knock on the doors. And, and since I was a practitioner, I was able to talk the talk and speak the language and Customers didn't feel like they were being sold to. I love your mug, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Just for you, Peck. Yeah, but yeah, it, the conversations were always, it almost felt like we were working together because we would just talk about the problem. What were they trying to solve? And here's some of the solutions. And it always seemed like we're already working together because we're talking about the, the craft and the, the problem versus what is the deal and what's the contract and what are we selling and buying? I, I, and I I think you, you, you raise an incredibly important point. From the get-go, you're talking about the problem. You're not coming in with a preconceived sell. Yes. It all comes down to spending enough time on what that problem is. And as I mentioned a little earlier, often the problem that the client perceives is not actually the problem. It's something different. Having that ability to see a different set of data that comes in and directs or dictates what the actual problem is, it's very difficult for a you know, hardcore salesperson to be able to make, make that jump. Not impossible, but you know, more difficult. Right. It's spending that time right up front, identifying what the problem is. Not, I have a whole bunch of solutions. Let me sell those to you. Absolutely. The, it reminds me of a client we once came across where they wanted to do a new website design. And my question was, what is this going to solve for you? We need more customers. We need more traffic. Well, like just redesigning the website, maybe a pure salesperson who didn't know would have just sold them a website. It's like, okay, you came here for a website design. We'll give you a website design. But will that necessarily achieve their goal uh, of getting more customers? Well, maybe not. Maybe just App Store, you know, SEO and <laughs> advertising and stuff like that would have solved their need more than it's such a perfect example it's exactly that i need more revenue therefore i need a website or i need more revenue so we've thought up a a new app (laughs) it's much much broader than that it has to be broader than that right and as i mentioned earlier often it's not the website it's a different client set that you should be pursuing yeah yeah that's so true getting back to why some of the audience might be want to listen in on you is the fact that 
fjord scaled so fast at the height of the growth how many designers were you bringing in a week or a month how many employees Ooh. and people wow so it's we never recorded it so at least difficult to say on a you know, per week basis let's let's start from the macro level i think when i joined we were about 40 or 50 people and that was 2009 Beginning of 2009, 2013, we were up at 200, so it's 9, 10, 11. That's probably three years we'd gone from 50 to 200. And then with the benefit of being part of the broader extension group, more demand, we grew from that 200 to, in fact, what is closer to 1,400 people now. I think it was 1,100 at the beginning of last year. So you, you can start looking at that multiplicative effect over a, what would have been seven-year period. It was fast growth. Now, look, part of that, there was an element of inorganic growth and you know, by way of acquisition. And I think any growth story is going to have an element of that. And we did, we, we, with the benefit of you know, Extension Interactive and you know, Bayesian Olaf identifying what add-ons did we need to bring into a broader offering for a fjord. And I can come back to some examples of that. There were teams of 20 people here or you know, 100 people there. There were also... Um, some add-ons from within Accenture. So prior to Accenture having acquired Fjord in 2013, they had Accenture Experience Agency, which we folded into Fjord, and that was about 40-odd people. They had acquired Acuity around about the same time as Fjord. Acuity had you know, very much a, a commerce platform, commerce offering with a relatively large team of designers. We brought the designers into the Fjord you know, design and innovation space as well. So it was probably... 50-50 inorganic and 50% organic. Mm. Um, I think we were very fortunate that, and I always you know, hesitate when I uh, think about other companies' demises or at least your know, problems. I think we were like, we were able to bring in some really exceptional talent from companies like IDEOs and Frogs, folks that I think were slightly more disillusioned of being part of a broader you know, technology play as opposed to more a specific design to mm -hmm. type play. There were periods when demand was high, that we were able to recruit relatively quickly. I say that cautiously in terms of relatively quickly because it's always hard to find really good designers. There, there are certainly folks, and we started evolving into a space of training up more junior people, recruiting more juniors, bringing them into and bring them into the fold, and then educating those the, those folks into the, the ways of fjord the, the processes the procedures that we had the the methodologies i think a lot of companies are doing that so it was a little bit of everything yeah yeah and it makes sense to just fold in a proven team to to just rather than one at a time and just have a whole drop yeah. a whole squad that already works well together and knows each other and and can work yeah and drop right in those acquisitions don't come out with don't, don't come without their own challenges because now you're <laughs> sort of integrating your know, different cultures just as we integrated a field culture into a broader Accenture culture. So yeah, it, it just brings up a, a different challenge set. I'm not going to use the word problem set because it was it was seldom a problem. It was always with the, the very fundamental basis of being additive to and whether it was additive by way of geography or additive by way of offering, it was always with a very positive intent in mind. And we would make it work. Yeah. I think with the help of the broader Accenture, the same machine, for lack of a word, better word, certainly all the financials, the HRs, the ITs, yeah, a lot of that was able to help mold the that. infrastructure. Then a lot yeah. of it, then the infrastructure, then a lot of it came down. And 
there were some pain points on that side, as you would probably expect. But I, I think the, the broader cultural integration all comes, you know, really comes down to the leadership of the team we were acquiring and the leadership team that that we had, you know, as Fjord and the, the interactive leadership team. I think the interactive leadership team was incredibly protective, supportive, nurturing, brilliant mentoring in pulling to helping us pull together the additions into Fjord and building Fjord as it went. So I think we were incredibly fortunate and that's probably why Fjord has been as successful as it has been within the broader Accenture group. Yeah. Well, you, you touched on a, upon a word that I wanted to double click on is culture. How did you keep the culture intact or, or did the culture have to become sort of an Accenture interactive culture or Accenture culture, or was it a melding of the two? What did that look like? Cause in any company that's wish who are mindful of growth or want to grow sustainably or, that's something that I think a lot about uh, as well as we grow our organization. I think I'm a great believer in that. That's saying that your culture eats strategy for breakfast. You can have right. strategies coming out of your ears, but unless you've actually got that culture, you're going to be on a hiding to nothing. It's going to be incredibly difficult. To your point about the fueled culture versus interactive culture, I think they were very aligned at that time, which allowed us to integrate into the Accenture interactive world so well. And for so long, and it continues to be really good. The, the reason I have a, a little smile and the, so the, the following anecdote probably explains something. When we were acquired, you have workplace solutions that do their audits on all of the studios that Fjord had. Security and gas suppression systems for server rooms, et cetera, that came from workplace solutions. They'd come in, they'd done an audit on our New York studio, which had probably 25 employees, maybe 30 employees. The report went all the way up to their head of acquisitions that you know, sat at the Accenture board. And there was a big red section under, I'm not sure, it was New York Studio. We were classified as drug distributors. <laughs> and we, we dug into that a little bit further. I pride myself as the chief operating officer that I'm sure we didn't do any drug distribution. It turned out to be a little bottle of Advil or aspirin that was in the bottom drawer in the kitchen that when designers you know, get really overworked and have a little bit of a headache. There's a bottle of aspirin, go grab one, you'll be fine in five minutes. Um, <laughs> that's in, in the broader scheme of Accenture policies is not done. Thou shalt not distribute over-the-counter or any other kind of you know, medication or, or drugs. But it, I, I think in the same report, we had dangerous weapons in the studio. I was thinking uh, horrible stories of you know, weapons, guns, knives, pangas. It turned out to be a, a plastic spatula that was stuck on the wall behind one of our designers and you know, somebody had written on the wall in case of emergency, break plastic. The, the little spatula had a you know, serrated edges on the side, but we had a good laugh at that. It was, I think, it's an indication to us that we're now part of a very big organization, an organization that has to be you know, risk averse. Now, clearly, workplace solutions were doing their job. They really were. They were you know, identifying things that you know, could be a problem it's not going to you know, sh shut down the, the entire shop, but it just you know, let us think yeah, culturally, we're going to need to get yeah. over this or at least work, work with that. Yeah, I th yeah that, that was really the start. The, from there on, we had an interesting, let's say, first six months. Designers, as I'm sure everyone on your, your podcast are, relaxed. They're fun-loving. In summer, it's T-shirts, shorts, it's mismatching trainers, baggy, you name it, it's there. We've got some fantastic, we had some fantastic employees with tattoos from neck down to the cuffs and you know, body piercings that second to none, you're on faces. And I think that created a little bit of a stir when you have your very austere, serious client account lead with an Accenture saying, I want to introduce fuel design innovation. 
to the C-suite at this mega bank. I don't want somebody with tattoos or shorts or mismatching trainers. It was fun to a certain point here working through all of that. I think it, it worked. 12 months into that, it was very much the same client account lead saying, I want that person that had you know, the really interesting body piercings or the tattoos up the neck because it, it shows that Accenture is evolving. It's not just a technology and operations company. We are creative. We've got design. We've got innovation. Um, we've got innovation hubs. We're a different species now. We're not just the, the suits and ties. And I think that culture infused itself increasingly into the broader Accenture world. And I think that's almost the broad extension now. Yes, there'll always be some ties. There needs to be some degree of formality. But I think certainly at the sort of design, innovation, Accenture Interactive you know, experience offering, it's a lot more relaxed than, let's say, 10 years ago and certainly than 20 years ago. Yeah, I do remember uh, even at labs, even though we were always business casual, they did let us know that hey, by the way, tomorrow, some C-suite from some big company is going to be by, so make sure you look better, right? <laughs> Just <laughs> FYI. So, Which is a polite a, way of saying, put some shoes on. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> so it's good It's good to know, because actually that, that might have been turned into a difficult question that you might want to avoid. The creative types can come in all shapes and colors, if you will, with, with piercings and tattoos yeah. and Accenture being a global <laughs> upper echelon consulting company could, yeah, the, that would have, could have been a very difficult situation or difficult, difficult conversation. And I think you're exactly right. And I keep coming back to, and I used that word a little earlier, protection. Interactive, Beiju, his team were superb in remaining true to the word. And what I mean by that is prior to the acquisitions, there was an open conversation of what is really critical to Fjord in order to uh, retain its success for the acquisition and integration to be successful. And that there were probably five or six you know, key points, but the, the two or three that really stood out is, please look after the business model. Fjord was coming in with a studio model where designers sit in studios and they have their desks and they, they have their laptops or their screens. I'll have the pot plants and the slippers under the, the tables, but it was a space where they could work. They could deliver their work safely. They could go into project rooms. They could throw Sharpies and hurl post-its at each other. But what comes out of those project rooms is world-class stuff. We're not, Fjord wasn't an environment which was fly out on a Sunday night or Monday morning and fly right. back on a Friday. That would have broken the culture. So just please don't mess with the studio model. Interesting enough, don't mess with the name. Now that was always going to be quite a sticky one because typically big companies will acquire a smaller company, a, a technology, take the technology or take the the IP and the name goes. I think Interactive was true to the word and that they allowed us to keep that primarily because nobody's going to approach Accenture for creative services at that time. Right. In 2013, they would approach Accenture for multi-million dollar technology and uh, infrastructure platform type conversations, business process, outsourcing conversations. I think Interactive was trying to build um, this new culture. So leave the name. People, clients will come to Accenture knowing that Fjord is there. So it was always Fjord part of Accenture Interactive or the vision of Accenture Interactive. Equally, designers were never going to go and join Accenture if there wasn't something that they could, that they would know that they're getting their teeth into, that they've been part of a Fjord unit. It was a little tricky you know, bringing that talent in, knowing that we are part of Accenture. But I think we worked through that and you know, designers 
comfortably and happily come into the field now. So that was the second one. And the third one, which is a very big topic of cultures, please don't mess with the culture. We do have these studios and these studios do have beanbags and lava lamps and you know, farm style type tables for lunch where all the designers get together at lunch times and we do tasty Tuesdays, whiskey Wednesdays, cultural breakfasts in Helsinki on Fridays where different cultures, you know, you'll have two people from you know, Germany that will serve up breakfast on a Friday for the rest of the teams. So it's all of those cultural things. There was one very big event that we have every year. We call it Equinox, where when we were a little smaller, it was bringing everyone from all of our studios to one location. And for you know, two and a half days, it sounds like a little bit of a party. In fact, there was <laughs> some good socializing, but it was very much an opportunity for all of the designers to get together and have breakout sessions for all of the um, visual designers, and interaction designers, and business designers, operations people, IT people, HR people, sharing strategy, discussing collaboratively discussing you know, what direction Fueled was going to be going in into. And we did that for many years. Accenture allowed us to continue doing that. It gets a little bit tricky when we're up at a thousand people. It gets a little bit more expensive. We've had you know, separate sessions like that, but don't mess with the culture. We need to be able to do that. We need for the designers to feel that they're part of a family. So that was the third one. And you know, interactive, true the word, helped us hold on to that argued, fought for us with the, the powers that be that sit up on Mount Olympus with the, the money bags and the calculators and allowed Fjord to build and grow. Yeah, that's so amazing that they, they were able to keep that. So kudos to, to Beiju. And uh, yeah, don't mess with something that works. You bought something that works, so <laughs> don't mess with it. And, and Peg, isn't it so often the case that you know, companies acquire something that you know, either a talent or an offering or a product that is, would fit so great in our company but such little work or insufficient amount of work attention is paid to how do you integrate it proactively and positively yeah. such that yeah. such there'll always be the little ups and downs, but such that in the you know, medium to longer term, it's a positive outcome. And yeah. I think that's where a lot of acquisitions do fall down, that, that people integration side. Yeah. How are you guys organized? You spoke ahead of Madrid, head of this and that. I'm curious how the team was structured. Probably structure slightly differently at slightly different times as it's grown up. But it, we started off and probably continue for, for quite a while with that sort of hub and spoke approach so that you would have London that was, let's say, the mothership and looked after or oversaw the Nordic type countries, Madrid, what turned into Paris, France, and sort of Berlin. We had sort of New York that would then looked after San Francisco and Chicago. Then it turned into your regional heads mm -hmm. with studios. The regional head would then be responsible for the health, the welfare, the financial delivery, the performance of that particular region, as you would probably expect. I think that's now folding into a, the broader Accenture model of Accenture North America and Fjord is very much part of, of that within Accenture Interactive. So Interactive is a tier one play now design experience is part of that just as your know, fuel becomes the design and experience or the design experience play for europe fjord australia new zealand apac singapore is part of the apac or the growth markets region so it's it, it was in, intentionally grown with a small a smaller leadership group up, up at the top and then leaders in each of the three main regions does that answer your question? It, it does. It does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and other clients then pretty localized to that studio or vice versa, meaning the studio in Madrid or Bangkok or Chicago service, mainly those lo somewhat local clients? 
Interesting enough, that's evolved as well. I think the original exposure we had to clients was very much big client based out of Madrid or big client based out of London or big client based out of um, San Francisco. And we would then cater to those two or three big clients. And certainly in the early stages, we wanted to make sure that we had at least two or three big clients in a particular city, in a city that we knew there was design talent available. Mm -hmm. It would make no sense you know, setting up a, a whole fueled studio in Omaha, Nebraska, because Berkshire Hathaway is there. Um, <laughs> not much as we'd love to do, we would have loved to have done more work there, but it was very much enough number of clients and talent. And talent, makes um, sense. And, yeah, correct. What we what we found increasingly over the last couple of years is that you have a Pfizer or a Nestle or a you know, pick any international brand that, yes, their head office and the, the core it's a piece of work that we delivered might have been in London, but now they're wanting to focus on some services in the US or Latin I America see. or Southern Africa. So that, that just requires a you know, greater degree of collaboration, communication, trying to make that as seamless as possible, which is not, not easy in a mega group like an Accenture, um, where you have client account leads by region and just bring all of, the, all of, those, all of those together. Now, it, it works. It will happen. It just needs to be that much more deliberate and intentional and understanding that there are other players and other players that can add value into that conversation and building client. So, yeah, there is a lot more of this happening. Amazing. Thank, thank you for that. That was really insightful. What's next and what do you think about? I, I think a lot about user experience, but, but what's next for user experience? And then I would say COVID definitely accelerated digital transformation. Cool did more for digital transformation for more than any CIO or CTO could ever do. <laughs> but what do you think about it? It, 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 it absolutely fascinated me, the speed and pace with which the design teams, and obviously the, the few teams that I was exposed to at the time, the other time last year, how they were able to accelerate the use of technology in order to still be able to run a 60-person workshop on Zoom and breakout rooms, et cetera, et cetera. Now, there are always going to be challenges of security and you know, whether Zoom actually matches up to the securities and Microsoft Teams is, I think, still uh, the technology that, that, that Accenture uses. It fascinated me, and I have immense respect for all of those teams that were able to snap so quick, quickly into that. What do I think about next? Yeah, I'd love to say yeah, these are also my ideas, but they're, they're not. There's some incredibly yeah, clever people out there. There are a lot of reports and... Um, yeah, insights that have been you know, pulled together. I think that the one that really hits me the most is this move from customer experience, which will always be foundational, into the business of experience. And this is you know, architected by the Accenture Interactive folks and you know, Beijing and his team. It's moving away from just looking at the, 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 the customer need. And yes, everyone should be obsessing about that. But now expand that a little bit further, expand that into the experience of innovation, making innovation an everyday habit, not just a boy, we need more revenues, we've got to think differently and more creatively, let's think of something that needs to be day in, day out. There needs to be that mindset. There needs to be that permission to fail and permission to explore the news. It's a sort of an internal company culture that I think clients you know, need to start thinking of. That associates very, very closely then with the you know, expanding the, the experience remit. So it's not just in the product side. It's the experience within financial, IT, HR, and particularly technology. How do you get experience you know, embedded into all of those pieces 
So it's endemic across the whole organization. And ultimately, as you'd expect, and you have to have, how do you synchronize? How do you sync up all of the human technology, your data agendas? So I think, not I think, I know that is absolutely the next step of how customers, clients, businesses need to evolve themselves in order to deliver on that exceptional customer experience. I think it's a really clever piece of work. I think that's going to drive the industry for some time. And I think companies like Fjord and the broader extension need to be providing or preparing for that. Just as mid-tier design companies and smaller design companies need to be able to answer that when they're clients. So I think that was clever. I like <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I think the business of experience design right now, uh, a lot of it is people talk about user experience and they focus, uh, clients come to Fjord and, and other agencies to help with the customer experience and the user experience. And oftentimes the experience maybe of the, the sales team or IT or the back office, most of those in-house tools, if they're ever hardly ever see the resourcing of a designer because the argument is that, oh, well, the customer will never see this. It doesn't matter. But the experience then is suboptimal and it ends up costing the company more and more time and money. So it's that education. Yeah. Yeah. I I think within that, the employee experience has to be a huge drive. And it's not just look after employees as they can work from home, you know, one or two days a week. I think it's a much broader remit on that side. Every opportunity I have, that that plug for diversity and inclusion and including different thinking, particularly the gender equality, the the ethnicity equality or or inclusion, it has to be first and foremost. Mm -hmm. It's proven companies do so much better with that kind of thinking. So weaving that into the employee experience, it it, it makes sense. If people aren't happy in organizations, um, and I think this past year, particularly with the Black Lives Matter sort of, you know, movement, it really brought to the forefront the need for employees to feel safe, included, valued. We're within an organization. Get that right. Boy, employees in yeah. that group are going to create magic yeah. for clients. I feel strongly on that. So you heard it here. Not Don't just focus on user experience, but also think about deeply about employee experience. As we wrap up, do you have any career advice uh, or, or advice in general for those of us thinking about scaling our design organizations? 24 hours a day, I'd love to help anyone that actually wants to do that. I think that the, the critical part is making sure there's a very clearly, collaboratively built articulation of you know, what that North Star is. Because I think Olaf, Fjord, Mike were, sorry, Olaf, Mark, and Mike were exceptionally driven by that service design mindset not having something that you can really align yourself to and align all of your decisions that makes it that that much trickier make sure there's very clear leadership that whoever is that leader is driving that message that that kind of sense of belonging and then culture how you build on that culture it can't be a revolving door of employees coming in uh, and going out you're building that environment which is attractive to the designers to come in and work and want to work. And whether it's in a physical space, I think there'll be some physicality you're going forward, but certainly in this kind of environment, and it's harder. In a pandemic environment, I think we'll have this kind of world for some time to come, hopefully all vaccinated. Creating an environment that designers want to work together. I think that those are the three most critical elements for me. But the rest will follow from that. But as long as you've got your vision, your clear leadership, and a culture that attracts the talent, 
to want to work for you and you know, want to stay. That to me are the sort of the, the, the troika um, of getting right before you even take the next step. Do you have any resources or books that you leaned on to, to help with this journey? Wow. Daniel Pink, I love, and he's got you know, three or four books, which you know, spring, spring to mind. There's an awesome one at the moment, which is The First 90 Days by the guy you know, Watkins, which is you know, building those business plans and it's probably more, more aligned to early stage Michael D. Watkins, which is a great book. Yeah, Daniel Pink is my go-to guy. Great, great. I'll like put him on the show notes. Yes, he's sales. a great guy. Thank you so much. And how does anyone get in touch with you if they'd like to learn more? On LinkedIn, I'm in there. Otherwise, Andrew M. Falcon at gmail.com. Otherwise, through yourself. I've got yeah, lots of conversations uh, going on. As I said, I'm passionate about people. I'm passionate about growth. If there's a way of helping folks build with purpose, grow, that's what blows my hair back on a Monday morning when the snow's coming in sideways. I'll get out of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's your jam. You found your passion. Hey, thank you for having me. This yes. has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Yes, you. it's been great to have you on your show. I myself have learned a lot and I'm sure the audience will appreciate this as well. And then some of those resources, including your LinkedIn, will be in the show notes. Perfect. Thanks, Beck. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thank you for joining us on this episode of What is UX? If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. If you leave us a review, I'll make sure to shout it out on the show. If you have any questions, send them to questions at whatisux.co and our guest and I will try to answer them on the show. And you can always find us on whatisux.co. See you on the next one.